we are going to start the show talking about about what is happening in Ottawa across the country on the weekend. There were protests that were taking place in many different cities. Of course, we saw the footage as well in Ottawa where there was a lot of honking, to say the least. We now know this is news that's just coming in. A judge has granted granted an injunction against honking in downtown Ottawa. That just happened in the past few moments. We also heard earlier today from Transport Minister Omar Algabra, Algabra saying that provinces do have extensive regulatory powers over commercial trucking and road transportation. These powers could include, for example, quickly enforcing the provisions of the Ontario Highway Safety to begin suspending commercial licenses and also insurance of commercial owners of the equipment blockading the streets days on end in a city or on a highway. There have been numerous calls for the federal government to do something to manage the protest response. And at this point, we are waiting to see if other measures are going to be taking place. Right now, though, joining us to talk more about what is happening is Ujjal Dosange, former premier of this province, former attorney general, as well as MP and minister of health. Ujjal Dosange, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Good to be with you. What are your thoughts uh, on what we are seeing currently in Ottawa and these protests at other Canadian cities? Well, I think, you know, when when people take um, freedom of expression and freedom to demonstrate to the extreme, this is what happens. I mean, we are a democratic country, a free country, where people should be able to um, freely demonstrate, but then go home. Uh, and not cause inconveniences uh, and create dangers for people who are basically uh, wanting to live their ordinary daily lives. Um, This is, in a sense, when demonstrators uh, um, stay in one place, occupy places, make it inconvenient for the government to function or people to live their lives, then it's no longer um, a simple right to demonstrate that is the issue. Uh, it is um, our it is about our ability to then live our daily lives without hindrance, and and that I think has become an issue in Ottawa. And I think partly uh, we've been sort of uh, hurtling towards this situation over the last many years. Uh, you know, we've had many demonstrations where where the governments didn't act uh, expeditiously, uh, quickly, uh, allowed people to um, believe that they could um, uh, hamper economic activity for long periods of time without government doing anything or blockade rails or, you know, other things. And then when you do that, then you actually invite uh, um, what's happening in places like Ottawa because then people think, well, the governments are lax. Uh, they really don't care about ordinary people's right to live peacefully. Therefore, we can actually take these demonstrations to the extreme and cause utter inconvenience. Do you think there needs to be more done in that? So we did just hear that an Ontario Superior Court justice has granted a 10-day injunction to prevent truckers that are parked on city streets in downtown Ottawa from honking their horns incessantly. So that has has passed in the the Ontario Superior Court. There has been criticism, though, that the Prime Minister has not come out and addressed what's happening, that more should be done from the federal government. Do you think they need to take more measures or address this more? 
I, of course they do. And I think I think what's happening is that, we're, you know, all governments at all levels, and obviously Ottawa has declared a state of emergency, but Ottawa doesn't have as many powers as a city, as provinces and the federal government do. Um, and, and both the provinces, um, particularly Ontario and the federal government, they have failed to act. Now, what they do, I'm not in government. I don't have all of the... Uh, knowledge at my disposal here but you know they can invoke an emergency and have them cleared out in no time i know it would create problems but then people need to know that there are limits to your ability to occupy places and make other people's lives difficult and what are your thoughts as well when we look at the protest itself? And like you said, everybody has the right to protest and stand up and call something out if they are opposed to something or in favor of something. But it does feel like this particular movement started as one movement and then morphed into something else quite different. And and certainly we've seen examples in Ottawa of uh, there were places where fires were being started. There have been criminal cases opened from harassment hate crimes. So what about the, the, the kind of shifting of the protest and this kind of fringe element that almost seems to have taken over? Well, that, that's, that's quite frightening. Um, you know, people running around on horses with Confederate flags right in uh, downtown Ottawa. I mean, that's scary. Um, people don't understand. We're not the United States of America. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Trump should have no influence. But unfortunately, there is a fringe in this country uh, that has come to the fore. I think part of it is that many of us watch American television and think that we have the right to bear arms too. <laughs> so it's that kind of cross-border confusion. But, but the fact is that this country has had these elements for a long, long time. Um, you know, People's Party um, uh, gave them an outlet during the last election. This convoy, uh, either advertently or inadvertently, has given them uh, a, a, a forum for expressing all of those extreme views. And uh, it is becoming a scary sight when you have swastikas uh, and other things uh, being displayed in demonstrations. Now, there may be isolated situations, but you know, if you have a, a demonstration that's clearly demarcated for uh, health reasons or it's about anti-vaxxer, then uh, perhaps uh, they should be policing it themselves more appropriately. And they aren't doing that. And what about the original idea of this or how this started as it was uh, truckers opposed to the vaccine mandate, both on this side of the border, as well as the mandate for truckers crossing back and forth. So the U.S.-Canada border, uh, it has it has become more broad in that it's calling for the end of all vaccine mandates. It's calling for the lifting of all restrictions. We are seeing that starting to happen in some provinces. But is there any way do you think the federal government can now make Make those changes right now, even if they were planning to, without seeming weak or seeming like they're buckling to these demands. Well, I, I don't believe anyone, anybody should be buckling to these demands in terms of uh, uh, cross-border uh, mandates. Uh, the United States of America wouldn't allow these truckers in anyway. Uh, so I don't know why they want Canada to be any different in that regard and less careful. Um, and, and, you know, um, I, I mean, they're now asking for the government of Canada to be dismissed by, by the governor general. I mean, that's a kind of element 
that you now have in this uh, in this uh, convoy. Um, I have never seen this in Canada. I've been in Canada since 1968. Uh, you don't demonstrate Occupy Ottawa and say the government should be dismissed. Um, it, that's essentially uh, a, a really uh, a very intimidating experience for people, I'm sure, who live there. And I noticed, too, even in Vancouver, I happened to be driving where when a lot of the people in the Vancouver convoy on Saturday were coming into the city and 12th Avenue was bumper to bumper coming into the city. A lot of cars and trucks, mainly trucks with flags. But the one flag that kind of stuck out to me was the the F Trudeau, which to me, I mean, I don't agree with everything Justin Trudeau does. I'm sure most people don't, even if you're fans, but it doesn't, it seems like such a personal attack. And it's not as though he's making decisions by himself or he's the one that holds all of the moves. It just seemed like a very different type of protest. Well, it it is. I think partly, um, partly it is the fringe element that, that couldn't defeat Mr. Trudeau uh, last time. And obviously they are venting their anger and uh, partly it's people who are anti-vaxxers um, and don't believe uh, in allowing other people to remain safe. I mean, they want their rights, but they don't worry about other people's right to be safe. Um, so this is actually turning into um, a very scary situation. And I have said to people privately, and I say it publicly to you, that if we had the presidential kind of system that they have in the United States of America, I wouldn't be surprised that today if somebody like Trump ran to be the president president of Canada, you'd get 20 to 30 percent of the vote. I mean, that is scary. That is really scary. What would your advice be then at this point to the prime minister, to uh, federal uh, ministers as far as what to do next to address what's going on? My advice to them would be stay firm. Don't change the mandate under threat. Make sure that, uh, you know, they have the power to invoke the emergency. I know it is not the done thing. I know it should not be done lightly. But the fact is that that these truckers have now held Ottawa hostage for um, at least a week, if not more. I can't count days. Um, And if, you know, they need to do something. Um, when, you know, we had a situation in British Columbia a long time ago when I was the Attorney General, we had to have um, armies aid to a certain extent to deal with um, holdouts. And and uh, and if Ottawa or uh, the province uh, need to call in the assistance of the federal government, federal government should come to their aid and deal with this situation. All right. Uh, Ujjal Dosanjh, thank you so much for your time and for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, taking a closer look at some of those numbers released earlier today, and as you've been hearing on the news, BC forecasting that more than 630,000 people will retire from their jobs through 2032, making it so employers will in some cases have to restock the workforce. The province also projecting there will be about 1 million job openings over the next decade, including retirements. So what do the numbers look like? Let's bring in Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, Ravi Kalan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon, Jill. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon to you. Can we look specifically first at the retirements and what we're expecting with that kind of shift and the number of jobs opening up? 
Well, Joe, we've certainly seen it uh, through the pandemic where um, many people are uh, reflecting on what's more important to them in their lives. And, and many have chosen to uh, retire. Some retire a little early so they can enjoy their time uh, that we have here. And But what we're seeing also in the projections, which was laid out today, is we're going to have a million new job openings over the next decade. A large portion of that is going to be because of retirement. We have a population that's getting older. And we're going to need to fill those jobs with uh, both um, young people who are coming into the workforce with new immigrants and also some people who are excluded from the labor market that we need to find ways for them to get back in. And when you say people who are excluded from the labor market, who are you talking about? Well, there are many people um, uh, that uh, are not in the labor market. Um, Some face barriers. Um, uh, Some would be people that haven't worked in a while and they find it difficult to get back into the job market. We have some people who, uh, for example, are staying home to take care of kids because there's not enough childcare that's available. So there's going to be a whole host of measures that we're going to need to take to find the people that are uh, available to work, but for some reason can't get themselves back in the labor market. Because if you saw the projections today, we project that 92% of the employment is going to be picked up by uh, young people coming to the workforce, um, uh, the new immigrants that may come into the workforce, but there's about 8% that is still unaccounted for, and some of that will come by being addressed through automation, but some will come from people who are not working that need to get back in the workforce. Uh, the labor market outlook also uh, says that or is forecasting saying that about 80% of future job openings will require some level of post-secondary schooling, education or training. Not a huge surprise there. Are there specific areas, though, that you're seeing or looking at that, that will be the ones where, uh, be it healthcare or certain areas where we're seeing a big push or where we're going to see those openings? Yeah, yeah, Joe, there's uh, two uh, or say three uh, main sectors where we're seeing the biggest opportunities. Uh, first one is you highlighted the, the care economy. Uh, that means uh, healthcare workers. That means um, people that are taking care of our loved ones in care homes uh, as we have more aging population. Uh, it means uh, early childhood educators uh, taking, uh, take, you know, supporting our young children in uh, uh, early childcare uh, centers. Um, that is one big piece of where we see the biggest opportunities. The second is the tech sector. Uh, the tech sector is booming in, uh, in BC. We are seeing investments, large investments every single day. We're seeing companies that are being evaluated over a billion dollars and are hiring like crazy. And third is our construction sector. We know we're going to need a lot more trades, uh, people with skills uh, to work in our construction sector, which is uh, projected to continue to increase and grow Uh, over the next decade. So those are the three major sectors that we're going to be putting particular focus on in the the coming years ahead. And do we have the seats available then if we look at those specific jobs that will require that post-secondary education? Are there the training seats available in BC or is there also um, having to rely on people coming here with those skills already or, or training elsewhere? Yeah, that's a good point because, uh, A, we have uh, significantly increased seats over the last couple of years. But we're going to have to do uh, a further analysis on how do we meet those gaps, uh, what are the pieces we need, how many seats we need. And for new immigrants that arrive, uh, it'll be, uh, as you highlighted, uh, recognizing people's skills when they get here so they can fully participate in the economy. And if there's gaps, um, than providing that. But it, it's also providing training opportunities for those people that are already working. 
uh, for employers to be able to reskill and upskill and take better opportunities so that they can move up into better paying jobs. So there's, it's a big challenge ahead, and it's certainly ch- different than challenges in the past where uh, it's been about how do we create jobs for the people we have. Now we're projecting more jobs and not enough people, which is a different challenge uh, that we have to face. And so is work being done then, because you touched on this, that's often been a uh, criticism, is somebody can come here and be, uh, say, very qualified, be it in a healthcare job or a job that requires a lot of post-secondary training, but come to BC or come to other parts of Canada and not qualify. And it seems like there is a ton of red tape to make that happen. So is that being streamlined as one way to make people that already have those skills eligible to work? You bet. I mean, my dad came here as a lawyer and uh, drove taxis all life because he couldn't get that uh, that training opportunity to bridge uh, to be able to practice here. And we have there's just tons of stories like that. Uh, some in the healthcare sector, and so that work has already begun. Uh, my colleague Minister Josie Osborne uh, has been tasked by the Premier to look at all accreditation and find ways to streamline it so that when people come here with skill sets. Sometimes it's recognizing that they've got their skills required. Sometimes it requires testing, but sometimes it requires upskilling them so that they can meet the standard that we have here in British Columbia. And that's going to be a real challenge for us as we go forward. So if your dad moved here today, what would it take for him to then practice as a lawyer? Well, um, I think it's unfortunate it's too late for my my dad, but, uh, you know, I think there's, um, we have moved from when he arrived in the 70s and now there's obviously way more opportunities for, uh, say, a lawyer or a healthcare professional to get some sort of training to be able to do that. Uh, often for new immigrants, uh, it's uh, English and just upskilling their English. Uh, but in other situations, it's, uh, it's, it's broader than that. Like, for example, we launched a, 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 the Innovator Skills Initiative uh, a few months ago, which is giving people uh, that have just arrived their first job in tech too often we hear from new immigrants when they arrive that the biggest burden or the biggest challenge for them to get a job is what's called Canadian experience. A lot of employers ask for Canadian experience. Well, if you come with uh, tech-related skills and you've never gotten a job here, how are you going to get Canadian experience? So there's a lot of barriers that we need to address collectively. But now that we have the metrics, we know where the jobs are going to be. Now all of us have to work together to, uh, to achieve that. Uh, and when you talk about uh, the, the types of jobs that are really going to need people, uh, and you mentioned them as far as healthcare, uh, looking at education as well in tech jobs, are you concerned that there are going to be jobs that traditionally pay a lot more, say a tech job over uh, maybe an early childhood education job? And with that, then comes the concerns of housing and the fact that people might very much want to go into a certain field, but it means you're going to have a very difficult time paying for housing if you're, say, living in Vancouver. Well, the pandemic has shown us that the economy is more than just uh, how many tax uh, cuts you're going to do and, and uh, you know, how many incentives you're going to give to a specific sector. What we've learned through the pandemic and many jurisdictions around the world have known for a long time is the economy is about people. It's about providing them the skills and opportunities, but it's also providing childcare so more people can work in, and enter the workforce. And it's about housing. And, and you nailed it. I mean, we're going to need more people to come. So last year, we had 70,000 people move from other provinces to BC. That's the largest increase in 28 years. So people are coming to BC because they see opportunities but it's putting pressure on housing and we've got historic investments in place and we're going to need to do even more 
uh, because it's, it's a real challenge. All right. So we will leave it there for today. Minister, thanks so much for your time and for coming on to talk about the numbers. I appreciate it. Anytime, Jill. Stay safe. Well, news out from WestJet earlier today, that airline is extending schedule reductions by 20%, and that extension is going to be through March at least. The airline saying WestJet is continuing to navigate ongoing uncertainty and barriers facing travel. Therefore, they're announcing a further extension of the planned schedule consolidations, and the date being given today, those will continue through March 31st. So what is this actually? mean for travelers and will other airlines be doing the same well joining us now is claire newell president and founder of travel best bets claire thanks so much for being here oh thanks jill this did not surprise me this announcement that happened today uh, what westjet has done since the start of 2022 was they consolidated 15 percent in january then an additional 20% through February, and they're keeping that schedule through until the end of March. For anyone who may be impacted, the airline will uh, proactively notify of changes to people's itinerary by email. If they've booked through a travel agent, the travel agent will be in touch with them. They're really asking for people not to call because of the line. If you Oh, and Claire seems to have dropped off. We've had a slight technical problem there. We'll try and get Claire Newell back on the line and find out uh, a bit more. She was right in mid-sentence there too. Ah, I love live radio and technology. All right, we are talking about WestJet further extending their schedule reductions. That's the 20% schedule reduction. It is being extended through March 30th. And uh, as Claire was mentioning, not a huge testing, surprise. Testing, oh, one, Claire, two, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Hi. I don't know what happened there, Jill. I oh, am so sorry. Not your fault. I was just saying it's the, the love of live radio. Things just happen. There are gremlins sometimes in the system. But you were, you were kind of halfway through your, your first thought that not a surprise that WestJet is doing this, but don't call because it's very busy. Yeah, you wouldn't want to. It's anywhere between four and six hours, depending on the day. So it's really awful. But, you know, this the reason it wasn't a surprise to me, Jill, was the fact that all of the airlines and the entire travel industry here in Canada is dealing with the tough advisories and the restrictions that are still in place. Um, one of the things that they cited in their uh, media uh, I guess it press release today was that Canada remains the only country among the G7 nations that still requires a mandatory pre-departure. So that's the one that you pay for 72 hours within a 72 hour window of your flight back to Canada, as well as on arrival PCR testing, literally two within a three day window. So, um, you know, that's tough because we're seeing countries right around the globe now recognizing the importance of travel and they're opening up without restrictions. Just this morning, I came in to see that Australia will be opening up for fully vaccinated travelers February 21st. British government is dropping all of its COVID-19 testing measures for fully vaccinated people this Friday, February the 11th, as of February 7th. Portugal and Greece allowing fully vaccinated travelers to enter their country. And the list goes on and on. Every single day I come in, there is more. Um, but Canada has these really uh, expensive and, and tough things for people to take on, especially with, um, 
you know, looking at spring break and traveling as families, those molecular tests, there's really three of them, a PCR NAT test or an RT lamp, they're expensive. And they then you don't just have to wait. You have to go to a lab potentially and you have to wait 24, 48 hours to get the results. It's, it's very cumbersome. And do you have any idea why? I mean, it seems so strange when we talk about the efficacy of the testing. And and it did, maybe it made sense at some point much earlier on. But like you said, so many other countries are dropping these requirements. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense or it's, it's difficult to find reasoning as to why Canada is still doing this. You know, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I, and I do know that Canada has been very, very cautious and, and doing the right thing. But I think they need to change with the times. You know, I think that now that we're seeing other countries start to do this and really focus back on vaccination status versus uh, testing, I think it's better. I mean, Omicron was, is so contagious. It's just literally in every corner of the world. We now need to, I think the world is waiting for this to become endemic. And I think that the travel industry is really getting ready for that new phase. When it comes here to here in Canada, I'm not sure. I do hope that the travel advisory to avoid non-essential travel will be lifted by the end of this month. If I was a betting girl, I would say that. Um, we had that lifted pre-Omicron from October 20th through until mid-December. So I'm very hopeful of that. And I do hope that the testing will be eased. Certainly not two tests, uh, molecular tests, one pre-departure and one on arrival for anyone other than if you're coming from the United States. That that does need to be eased somewhat. Whether it's going to be dropped completely, that pre-flight, I'm not sure. It might be changed to a rapid antigen test, but you've done it. You know that you can get that result within 15 or 20 minutes the same day, and it is like half the price or even less in some cases. Right. And that's what people are, are doing in many cases when you're leaving uh, Canada or say you're leaving out of YVR. I know a lot of people are getting the test right there at the airport, which again, I mean, it's, it's not such a big deal, I guess, if you're a solo traveler. But like you said, you have a family going on a, a trip on spring break. It's a huge added cost. It's a huge added cost. And I'm not sure whether the federal government will ease it in time for spring break. My fingers and toes are crossed. There's so many people who now have their kids fully vaccinated and who've missed out on spring breaks uh, for years now. And I know that there's a lot of pent up demand. So I'm hopeful. But again, no crystal ball here. Don't hold me to it. (laughs) Um, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about when we talk about airlines like WestJet announcing that they are continuing the schedule reductions, the consolidations. I know they hate using the word cancellations, but what can travelers expect in that? Can they can they bump you completely or are they putting people on flight? just at different times or people seeing things where you might have a nonstop flight and then suddenly you have a flight where you're going through a different city. Likely that would be the case. The last one you said, if there was a nonstop flight, they might put you on a connection. Most likely it will be the same day. Sometimes I've seen it the, the day before or a day later you have the choice to cancel it though for a full refund they're going to i mean the the dates that this now potentially is looking like it's going to impact are right over spring break and so i know a lot of people hearing this are going to be very worried about that i can tell you if it is a full flight going to somewhere like southern california mexico the caribbean it will not be impacted they'll be looking at other other flights on routes that are not that busy so uh, in February, I didn't notice a lot of people impacted. And if they were, they it was not like, you know, canceling completely and not not getting an option. 
Okay. So what are you, what are you hearing from people as far as interest in traveling and booking travel? And what advice are you giving to people right now then doing this? Because people are, let's face it, even though there's the, the advisory, people are still getting back and getting on airplanes. So what are you hearing from people and what advice are you giving people? Well, the office uh, has been extremely busy since the middle of January. I'm going to qualify that by saying nowhere near pre-pandemic levels, but certainly a lot more interest since the middle of January. We always have to advise people, though, that that advisory is still in place to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada. That molecular test within 72 hours of returning to Canada from anywhere outside you still have to do and you have to complete the Arrive Can app. If you're choosing to go, you need to make sure that you don't let your guard down. You need to socially distance, use a mask, sanitize your destination because the worst thing is going to be if you haven't had Omicron, getting it while you're away because you cannot fly back to Canada until the 11th day after a positive test. So you need to ensure you've got insurance to cover the expenses you may incur for changing flights, accommodation, food. You know, the, the costs can really add up. Now, if you have had COVID. Um, there is a bit of a silver lining. Uh, if you have a positive molecular test, that a PCR, if you were lucky enough to have that, you can return to Canada using that positive test without getting another one from day 11 after recovery through until 180 days. So that's almost six months without the need to do another pre-flight test before you return to Canada. Right. And I, I heard someone talking about that the other day, and I'm glad you brought that up because it was unclear to me if you have the positive, and again, it has to be the molecular test, which are very hard to come by now. But if you have that, do you also need a doctor's note or can you just use that test result and you can fly for that or travel for that 180 days? So that's interesting. So a positive molecular test, you do not need any doctor's note to return to Canada. However, what we have found the U.S. is requiring, they will allow you into uh, the U.S., including Hawaii, with a positive molecular test or a positive antigen test, as long as it's after that recovery period, 11th day, only for 90 days. And you do need a doctor's note. All right. So many moving pieces to keep track of. Okay. So that's why I always <laughs> recommend Google searching that Sherpa travel, because if you're doing this alone, you will, it's an excellent resource to let you know exactly what you need going to a destination as well as coming home. It literally is so, so, so easy. Once you get there, you put in whether you're vaccinated or not, whether you're going one way, return, uh, whether you've got connecting flights. So it will tell you if you if you need something special, if you're connecting as well. Um, it's really, really important. It's on every agent in my office's desktop 24-7 right now. <laughs> All right. Well, Claire, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us and having the very latest on this. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Jill. Thanks so much. Well, earlier on in the program, we heard a little bit from BC's Agriculture Minister about the announcement of funding, the funding that will be made available to farmers and ranchers impacted by those floods in December. So we're, we're making it as easy as, as we can for farmers to get into the, the system and get their applications going. Uh, some farmers have applied for a DFA program. Uh, we know that uh, there's about, I think, 120 farms that have done that. That information was transferred to 
my ministry last week, and so the folks that have already applied for DFA will be getting calls over the next couple days from my staff. All right, just part of what Lana Poppin was announcing earlier today. The fund is a $228 million flood recovery package. And joining us to talk more about this is Ian Payton, the BC Liberal agriculture critic, also the MLA for Delta South. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts then, uh, your reaction to the package announced, the $228 million announced earlier today? Well, thanks, Jill. I mean, as a a farmer myself, and I've been through some pretty ups and downs over the years in farming industry myself, anytime you see uh, a major amount of money such as $228 million put forward by the federal government with uh, about 38% of that money put forward by the province of B.C., um, that's good news for farmers that have been terribly affected this past year by wildfires, uh, by the flooding that took place with this atmospheric river back in November. And so as a critic for agriculture, you know, I, I can't just sit here today and, and, and make a whole bunch of terrible comments because uh, good for them. They've come forward. Uh, but I do have some issues with, you know, how long this took. I mean, the flooding was three months ago. There's farmers that aren't even back in their homes yet because they can't get into their homes. They were so ruined by the water. Uh, farmers that, uh, you know, have equipment that still doesn't work on their dairy farms because it sat underwater for three straight weeks. So, I mean, my biggest complaint is two things. Why did it take, uh, well, let's say three things. Why wasn't there any warning uh, about this atmospheric river? There was actually warning across the line in, in Washington State for, for the people down there. The people up here, there's actually a class action lawsuit by farmers in Abbotsford right now because they didn't feel they had enough warning from the government. But number two is why did it take almost three months before there's any money even being made available to farmers and ranchers in this province? And three, what, what's going to happen in future? How soon can that money get out? Because the NDP are very good at making announcements of funding. Uh, but it's pretty difficult with uh, red tape and restrictions uh, of getting that money out the door. And I know we've seen some reaction from various stakeholders. One, the BC Blueberry Council, saying that they're going to be reviewing the fine print, I think probably for some of the reasons that you just pointed out there, that they want to get a better understanding of the program. Uh, What are you hearing, though? I know last time we talked to you, you had actually been out and you'd been talking with some of the farmers in that region. Uh, This, I would imagine this will be welcome news, but I'm guessing, too, that there is some concern about what you just said as well. How soon does it get out to the actual farmers? And will it be enough to really cover the costs? Exactly, Jill. So one of the, 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 the nice things about being the agriculture critic is I'm out there on a weekly basis meeting with farmers, whether they're dairy farmers, poultry farmers, people with blueberries. Um, and I've talked to them all. I've seen the destruction. I've seen what's happened when blueberry plants sit underwater for three straight weeks. Thousands and acres of blueberry plants that are basically dead. They're not going to be growing back. And so they're wondering, you know, will there be a full amount of money available for the replant program for people with blueberries? Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I really feel for these folks. I mean, like I, like I said before, I've seen their houses, I've seen their barns, I've seen their equipment that's been destroyed by the flooding and whatnot. And we cannot forget about the people up in Princeton and uh, Merritt and Nicola Valley that have not only lost, you know, hundreds of tons of feed, of fencing, irrigation equipment, but parts of their farms have actually been taken away by the river and the flooding and floated downstream.
Uh, and with the money announced today, I know the agriculture minister was asked if we have a better idea on the total cost of the flooding and the total cost of that damage. And I think the number that was put out was, was something around $285 million. She also mentioned that this funding that was announced today, the 228, is for things that, that won't be covered by private insurance and won't be covered by other funding. But is there a concern that this fund isn't going to be enough, even though it's, I think, the biggest one in, in BC history? Exactly. So, I mean, they're big numbers. I mean, everything nowadays is ridiculously big when we talk about, you know, it used to be millions, you know, um, but now you just talk in billions and, and even more. So, uh, unfortunately, I, I can think of any particular farm, whether it's a poultry farm or blueberry losses or cattle ranches that have lost land and livestock and fencing. I mean, $228 million, that could be gone in a heartbeat. But I think what's going to really tell the tale is what, what we're going to see two or three months from now, because what we've seen in past is people really complaining about the fact that, okay, they've made it so complicated for me to try and access this funding. And even if we have access, how, how, how soon is it going to get out? Are we going to see farmers and ranchers six months from now still waiting for the money to get into their hands? Are there cases, too, and when you've talked to farmers, are farmers generally, when we talk about private insurance, I mean, we are talking about a lot of properties that are in a floodplain or, or located on a floodplain. Are there concerns about private insurance coverage and whether or not farmers have that coverage? Uh, absolutely. Jill, you know, um, even up in Merritt, people along Highway 8 and whatnot, they weren't able to get um, private insurance, just like farmers in uh, Sumas uh, Prairie, which is, a, you know, a former lake. So uh, when insurance companies see that you're actually in a floodplain or a flood zone area, there's many instances where they just will not provide insurance for, for those farmers. What do you think, and again, like you said, you're coming at this from the, the point of agriculture critics. So what else needs to be done? Because you mentioned also that a lot of farmers felt caught off guard. Uh, but I, I would imagine, too, farmers probably knew or probably knew more, uh, were more in tune with what was happening than, than government. But again, what do you do? It's not like you have all of the resources at your fingertips. So how do you stop that in the future as far as better warnings, better building, better, uh, a better scenario so this doesn't happen again? Well, you know, we've we've discussed on many occasions with, uh, you know, even the mayor of Abbotsford has said, well, look, w w this can't just happen again, you know, five years from now or 10 years from now. We have to figure out, and it's it's not a real fancy subject that a lot of people like to discuss at budget time, but, you know, with the Nooksack River in Washington State that's that's been flooding and whatnot, we have to really look everywhere in the Fraser Valley that's in a floodplain area, including my area of Delta, you know, what's going to happen with the Fraser River one day if there's a massive freshet? So we have to look at, you know, spending money, which isn't the, the hottest topic going around, but, you know, we have to spend money on, on upgrading our dikes and our pumping system and make sure this doesn't happen again. All right. And we certainly, we certainly, sorry, Jill, okay. we certainly need a warning system. And I mean, it's so simple nowadays with your, with your smartphones, uh, to be able to warn people in advance of uh, a heat dome coming or uh, atmospheric rivers, things like that, so people can be prepared and people could have evacuated their livestock and their families and whatnot before this all happened.
But don't we have that system? And because wasn't one of the criticisms that it wasn't used or we have the system, but it rarely, if ever, gets used? Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure. But if we do have the system, it certainly wasn't used. In fact, people in in Abbotsford actually heard the the uh, let's call it an air raid siren going down in in uh, Linden, Washington and Ferndale, Washington. And they could hear it because the people down there were actually getting a warning from a, an air raid siren uh, two days before the flooding took place. Hmm, interesting. All right. Well, Ian, just before I let you go, I did also want to ask you uh, about your party. As you know, your party has a new leader. Your thoughts on Kelvin Falcon and what he needs to do when it comes to the B.C. Liberal Party? Well, I'm in Victoria, the legislature, Jill, and this morning was our first uh, caucus meeting with uh, our new leader, Kevin Falcon, and uh, people probably know that I was a a supporter of Kevin. Uh, I've never felt since my time here in May of 2017 when I was elected as an MLA for Delta South, uh, I can't recall feeling so much optimism, excitement. The team is absolutely bonded. We've said, look, whatever happened in the leadership race is water under the bridge. Uh, we're, a, we're a team. Everybody hugged and shook hands, and, and Kev, Kevin Falcon gave us such a, a rousing speech of the direction we want to go uh, to, 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 you know, come into to grips with things that have to take place in this province, uh, build this party back up to, to what it was one time and, and, and be much more inclusive and, and listen to the people of British Columbia. So uh, I'm feeling really good about where I am right now in, uh, in, in Victoria, and I'm looking so forward to the next election. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Ian Payton, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you, Jill. Anytime.